Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 42. Last week, I wrapped up with Queen Tusseret, the last ruler of the Egyptian 19th dynasty, which of course gets me to the 20th dynasty, a dynasty that ran from 1189 to 1077 BC, so just over 100 years. I'm going to try to make it all the way through this period in one episode, as I really need to accelerate out of Egypt now that we're in a period of history where it's reasonably certain that the exodus has already occurred. And a quick note, all but one of the rulers of the period are named Ramses, from the 3rd to the 11th, so in order to be a bit more efficient and to speed things up, I'll just refer to them by their number. And with that, let's get started. When Queen Tusseret died, Egypt fell into a period of civil war. As the country emerged from the strife, Setnikt came to power, and he was not related to the previous rulers. So, how he came to sit on the throne is a bit of a mystery. According to the Elephantine Stela, he would have to beat out many potential rivals to gain power. The Stela also references that he only achieved full control of the land after the expulsion of certain Asiatics, who fled Egypt, leaving behind the gold they looted from Egyptian temples. Now, it's uncertain the degree to which the inscription referred to contemporary events, or instead repeated any Asiatic sediment dating back to the reign of Pharaoh Amos I. A papyrus, known as the Harris Papyrus, provides a little further detail, though it's difficult to determine what is truth versus legend. Anyway, it reads, quoting, the land of Egypt was overthrown from without, and every man was thrown out of his right. They had no chief mouth for many years formerly until other times. The land of Egypt was in the hands of chiefs and of rulers of towns. One slew his neighbor, great and small, other times having come after it with empty years. Ursu, a certain Syrian, was with them as chief. He set plundering their possessions, they made gods like men, and no offerings were presented in the temples. But when the gods inclined themselves to peace, to set the land in its right according to its accustomed manner, they established their son, who came forth from their limbs, to be ruler of every land upon their great throne. Now pausing for a second, this is a reference to Setnik, unpausing. He set in order the entire land which had been rebellious. He slew the rebels who were in the land of Egypt. He cleansed the great throne of Egypt. He was ruler of the two lands on the throne of Atum. He gave ready faces to those who had been turned away. Every man knew his brother who had been walled in. He established the temples in possession of divine offerings to offer to the gods according to their customary stipulations. End quote. And you'll note that this document refers to a man named Ursu, who I also mentioned last week. I'll get to him as soon as I finish Setnik. Setnik would contend that the last legitimate ruler was Seti II, and in doing so, discounted the reigns of Amen Messi, Sipta, and Tusseret, the three of whom ruled for a combined 12 years. There are three predominant theories about how he came to rule. The first is that he was a usurper, 
and the second is that he was a minor royal. The third is that he married a daughter of Merneptah, and therefore had a slight claim to the throne. Of course, it could be a combination of any of these. Now, he would only rule for two to four years, which is beginning to be the norm for the period. Upon his death, his mummy was interred in the Valley of the Kings, but has never been positively identified. And there's an interesting little story about the construction of his tomb. Setnik had work started on a tomb in the Valley of the Kings, but ordered it halted when the tomb carvers accidentally broke into the tomb of the 19th dynasty pharaoh Amenmesi. After this, the tomb was no longer suitable for his royal highness. Setnik then appropriated the tomb of Queen Tusaret for his own use. He would be succeeded by his son, Ramses III, who begins the reigns of sequentially numbered Ramses. But before I get to number three, first a somewhat short sidebar into this man known as Ursu, who was, apparently, the Egyptian ruler in Canaan. But that doesn't mean he was a native Egyptian, just that he was their governor of the region. The Harris Papyrus refers to him as he who made himself. It's thought that he was a local, meaning Canaanite, leader who worked his way up to become the overlord of a group of local rulers. The area was under somewhat minimal Egyptian control during the time of unrest between the 19th and 20th dynasties. Until recently, and this means up until about the turn of the 21st century, Chancellor Bey was considered the only reasonable candidate for this leader. But, like I mentioned in the last episode, a recent document indicates that Bey was executed by Sipta. So, no joy there. Especially for Bey. Ursu's ascension occurred simultaneously with the strife in Egypt at the close of the 19th dynasty, perhaps precipitated by the lack of attention the region was receiving from Egypt as the empire dealt with its own internal issues. Issues like short-tenured leaders, economic decline, and power struggles, to the point that Queen Tusaret may have even intentionally ceded authority of the region to Ursu. What's unknown, in both the Harris Papyrus and the Elephantine Stela, shed some light on the situation, but nothing conclusive. It's unclear if Ursu's power extended into Egypt proper. The Stele does say that Setnik expelled Asiatics from Egypt, and this may mean that Ursu and or his delegates, or successors, were expelled from Egypt or Canaan. Either way, the self-made man known as Ursu disappears from the record. But before I move on, there are a few biblical researchers that equate Ursu with Moses, and therefore the expelling of the Asiatics from the land could refer to the Exodus. This of course presents the same problems as the Exodus during Ramses II reign, primarily that the dates don't line up with what's in other parts of the Old Testament. But it is out there, just in case you ever run across it. And with that, we return to Egypt and Ramses III. Number three was the second pharaoh of the 20th dynasty most likely having ruled between 1186 and 1155 BC, so 31 years, which makes him the longest reigning ruler the country had seen since the previous Ramses, and the country was in great need of the stability such a long reign would provide. 
It was perhaps a long enough reign, but too late, as his rule saw the continuation of the decline of both political and economic power. Also, or maybe because of this, he is considered to be the last ruler of the New Kingdom to wield any significant authority over Egypt. It was during this time that Egypt had to defend itself from foreign invaders, including the Sea Peoples and the Libyans. Sounds familiar. In fact, in his eighth year, the Sea Peoples invaded, only to be defeated in two enormous land and sea battles. His successful tactic was to line the beach with squads of long-range archers who continuously shot arrows skyward and seaward into the enemy ships while they attempted to come ashore on the banks of the Nile. At the same time, well, not exactly the same time, but in a coordinated manner, the Egyptian navy attacked using grappling hooks to reel in the enemy ships, which led to vicious hand-to-hand combat. Number three would go on to claim that the captured prisoners would be enslaved and then resettled in southern Canaan, but no evidence of this has been uncovered at least yet. Around the same time, the Sea Peoples do appear to have settled in the region of Canaan. What's unclear is if this was an intentional Egyptian policy. As an aside, their settlement in Canaan could have contributed to the formation of new kingdoms, kingdoms that came to prominence with the impending collapse of Egypt, kingdoms such as Philistia. More on that in a future episode. Despite the Egyptian victory, these conflicts took their toll on the economy. They also led to the first recorded labor strike in world history. All of this was compounded by low food production, possibly related to an Icelandic volcanic eruption. Whatever the cause, food, specifically grain production, decreased for close to 20 years. The effects of this were not limited to Egypt, as Irish oak trees of the same period show a decline in growth. And remember, when I covered the potential dating of the Exodus, and how records of it have never been found on Egyptian monuments, and how the Egyptians tended to not record negative events? Well, number three carried on this tradition, as his official monuments fail to mention most of the economic turmoil of his reign. In fact, most of his records tend to show him in a light similar to his namesake, Number 2, who had the nickname of Ramses the Great. These official records show him as being a leader during a prosperous time, which we know is far from reality. The final thing I'll cover about Number 3 was his death. In short, he may have been assassinated as part of a conspiracy led by one of his wives, She, along with others, were upset about who he chose as his successor. More on why we're still not certain on if the plot was successful in a minute. After the attempt, and I'll just call it that, there was a trial. Among the defendants were several of his butlers, his attendant, a couple of treasury and army officials, some scribes, and a herald. Think town crier. 38 people in all. Apparently, they were all found guilty, as they were executed soon afterwards. And before you think of it as a show trial, we do know that there was a jury, as apparently some of the defendants tried to get inappropriate with some of the jurors. 
Now, these jurors may be the same as the judges who heard the case, as some judges were severely punished. Now, what's unclear is how they tried to kill the pharaoh, and if they were successful. On this, the historical record is silent, but number three did die that same year, maybe before the trial was complete. And then there's his mummy. The initial examinations, occurring soon after it was uncovered in 1886, revealed no wounds. But there was more linen than normal around his neck. Further examinations, via a CAT scan conducted in 2011, revealed what may be a deep knife wound across his throat, deep enough to reach his spine. Even today, the wound would most likely be unsurvivable. So, if the wound really does exist, then he certainly was murdered. But that's not the only wound his mummy revealed. He was also missing a big toe. Weird. Likely lobbed off by a heavy striking weapon, like an axe. Maybe as the result of multiple assailants with multiple weapons. That certainly would help to explain all of the executions. But so would throwing a broad net and using the opportunity to permanently oust political enemies. Which gets me to his designated and actual successor, Ramses IV. Similar to number two's successor, Merneptah, he was not first on the list of successors, as he was his father's fifth son, but all of his older brothers died before their father. Number four would rule for only six years, and his first act of his new, and probably sooner than expected administration, was to prosecute, then execute those responsible for his father's death. During his short reign, he did set about several ambitious building projects, to the point that stones weighing as much as 40 tons were transported some 60 miles, which is almost 100 kilometers, many transported as far as the Temple of Karnak. And this is of note, not because of everything completed, but the opposite, that the rulers coming after him would attempt no large-scale projects evidence of a society in decline. And that's about it for number four, which gets me to his son and successor, number five. And with number five came a power shift seen many centuries prior in Egypt, a shift from the pharaoh and towards the priest, in this case, the priesthood of Amun. At the time, they controlled much of the temple land in the country, along with the state finances at the expense of the pharaoh. Remember back a few episodes when Horemheb in the 18th dynasty restored the traditional ancient Egyptian religion along with the priesthood of Amun after their abandonment by Akhenaten? With this, the high priest would act as intermediaries between the gods and the people, removing the pharaoh from the equation. Of course, this led to the pharaoh no longer wielding the same everlasting power as he had had when he was viewed as an intermediary between the gods and man. Now, the priests were in charge, and they would raise taxes, and were even involved in a treasury scandal. Some issues are timeless. During number five's reign, other things remained the same. The Libyans continued to attack the once great country, 
making it as far inland as Thebes, perhaps further. Number five would reign for only about four years before either dying or being ousted. Of course, the normal course is to reign until death, but he was not interred until the second year of his successor's rule. While tradition held that this needed to occur exactly 70 days after death, hence the ousted theory, a theory that would have him living another year or so. But these two theories have given way to a third possibility, and that is that he was interred temporarily while the new ruler dealt with invaders, possibly Libyans, again. Or maybe even a short-lived civil war. Things would settle down about a year later, then he could have been put to rest for good. Well, until 1898, when his mummy was uncovered, as it turns out, his mummified face had lesions similar to those found with smallpox. It may have even caused his death. If true, he would be one of the earliest known victims of the disease. Next is his successor, Ramses VI, who would reign for eight years. Prior to coming to power, he would serve as a royal scribe as well as a cavalry general. And his path to the throne was not typical. His predecessor, number five, was his nephew, the son of his older brother, number four. So number three was number six's, as well as number four's father. And that means the title of Pharaoh went from father to son to grandson to father's second son, all with the same name. It's so easy to get it all mixed up. And it yields great insight into why George Forming gave all of his kids the same name. At least there was little chance of calling them the wrong name. Just easy to mix them up, too. Anyway, after about two years of rule, he was able to curtail the Libyan invasions. On the other hand, he also lost control of Egypt's last strongholds in Canaan. Their final army troops departed the southern and western portions of the territory during his rule, and with their departure came the arrival of the Sea Peoples. Which happened first is anyone's guess, but nature does abhor a vacuum, and on the other hand, a weak country retreats from a strong enemy. It also appears that Egypt was quickly losing control of the Sinai Peninsula, as number six's name is the last pharaoh's name that is found inscribed in the region, at least for quite some time. And this is significant, as the territory was the source of much-needed copper, in this the waning years of the Bronze Age. And bronze is a metal that requires vast quantities of copper. This loss of territory inflicted further economic strain, leading to inflation and a curtailment of construction. The northern boundary of the country eroded roughly to a line between the Mediterranean and Red Seas, about where the Suez Canal is today. Egypt did continue to occupy Nubia, probably maintained through economic interdependence and military involvement. And the latter is a bit noteworthy, as accounts of military expeditions to the region have been uncovered, essentially raids returning with tributes and loot again. Overall, number six would rule eight to nine years, a time where the priest continued to gain power at his royal expense. 
He would die when he was in his 40s, and his most lasting impact occurred via sheer happenstance. While workers were constructing his tomb in the Valley of the Kings, they built huts for themselves. Huts that covered the entrance to Tut's tomb. Huts that would not be torn down and obscured the entrance to Tut's resting place from tomb robbers. A crime that would begin in earnest about 20 years after Number 6's death. There's no doubt he thought he would be remembered for something else, as he was prone to having monuments erected bragging about the robust economy and his major accomplishments, neither of which were true. In fact, the economy grew so poorly that he could no longer afford to erect new statues and monuments. So, what was he to do? Cheaper than new monuments was the carving over of your predecessors' names on the old monuments, and he did, especially those of his brother and of his nephew, numbers 4 and 5. And most of these were in public places, not the ones in tombs and private quarters, tending to show he wasn't attempting to usurp their memory, just bolster his own acclaim. Number six was buried in the Valley of the Kings, in the tomb originally built for number five. Five's final resting place has never been found, but six's was found quickly, meaning within 20 years, so quick in a historical context, very quickly discovered by tomb raiders. During the 21st dynasty, his mummy would be moved to the great mummy cache with so many other former dead mummified rulers he too would be rediscovered in 1898. An initial medical examination of the mummy revealed that he died when he was about 40 years old. There was also a great deal of damage to his body, with his head and torso being broken into several pieces, most likely inflicted post-mortem by the grave robbers. His sarcophagus was found smashed into about 250 pieces. It was finally reassembled in 2004, and is now displayed in the British Museum in London. Much to the dismay of Egyptian archaeologists, who have repeatedly requested that it be returned back to Egypt, so far the request has fallen on deaf ears. After number six was his son, known as, wait for it, number seven, who would rule for about seven years. At least that part is easy to remember. Other than how long he ruled, not much is really known about him. Well, not much except for massive grain inflation, with the foodstuff increasing to its highest price ever seen, at least to them. It's thought that he was buried in the Valley of the Kings, but his mummy has never been found. The royal mummy cache, though, did contain four cups inscribed with his name. And that's about it for number seven. Next is Eight, who was another son of Ramses III, which should give some insight into how short the reigns were and how many rulers were dying without sons to pass the throne to. Keep in mind that Number Eight's reign began in 1130 BC, and Number Three died in 1155. So in the 25 years since his father's death, the country had had five rulers all closely related to each other, brothers, sons, uncles. Number eight would rule only for about a year, at most two. 
and just like his predecessor, very little is known about him, both partially due to neither's tombs having been discovered. So far, only one monument and a separate document have been uncovered that even attest to him. Next is number nine, who is the grandson of Ramses III and the nephew of his predecessor. And this is thought to demonstrate a couple of things. First, all of number three's sons were all now dead. And second, number eight had no sons. Overall, a very turbulent time in the country. Eight did rule for over 18 years, which was bucking the recent trend in the country. But it wasn't a time without trouble. One of the more outstanding known events of his rule was the criminal trials of the Theban tomb robbers. The little we know about the trials does give a bit of insight into the Egyptian legal process. The mayor of West Thebes was accused by the mayor of Karnak, also known as East Thebes, of neglecting the security of the tombs. But the mayor of West Thebes was not officially charged with any crime, as all the evidence proved circumstantial. Seemingly, there was a rule of law. Soon after the case was wrapped, the mayor of Karnak disappeared. Maybe he accused the wrong person. Number nine's name has been found on monuments from Nubia, throughout Egypt, and even one in Canaan. And the Canaanite one is curious, since the Egyptians lost control of the area to other regional players many years before. He would have two sons, but neither probably reached adulthood, as the throne was not assumed by either upon his death. He was buried in the Valley of the Kings, but his tomb has been open to raiders and potentially curious explorers for quite some time now, to the point that its walls bear graffiti in both Greek and Latin, presumably from when the area was under Greek and Roman control. His mummy was rediscovered in 1881, and a medical examination shows he was about 50 years old when he died. It was found with broken limbs, a broken neck, and damage to its nose. Actually, damage isn't the right word. His nose was missing. Obviously, I guess, some, if not all of this damage occurred post-mortem, which smells like a good stopping point for this week's episode. As a refresher, this episode covered from Setnek to Ramses IX, which was from about 1189 to 1111 BC. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Ramses X and finish the long line of Ramses. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.